evidence and answers. The Apostle Peter describes what will happen at the end of the age. He states, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What is Peter describing here? When will this cataclysmic event take place? Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat explains this passage to us and reveals the events that will take place at the end of the age. Pat Sukrin is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we're going to listen to a recent sermon by Pat entitled, Living in Light of His Return. Join Pat now for this inspiring message from 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, I've read several biographies of men who endured the prisons of Vietnam, how many of them were brutally treated, how they were hung with their arms tied behind their back and hung by their arms for hours, how they were brutally beaten for hours, left for dead, and then thrown into a river in just a two and a half by two and a half little bamboo cage. And at, when the river would rise, the water would come right up to their nose to where they could barely breathe. I mean, it would just make them go crazy. Day after day, months after months, just enduring this kind of horrendous treatment, the kind of food that they were receiving rice filled with maggots and rotten fish, and they were not locked up in a prison camp like Hogan's Heroes kind of thing. They were literally in a prison, literally in a prison, many of them in solitary confinement, reading the story of John McCain's solitary confinement, which he endured for nearly three years. You know, that is just inhumane. Most solitary confinements last just for a few days before they go nuts, Many of these men, when they were allowed out of their cell, were allowed to wander for only about 40 yards. Uh, Just the brutal treatment that they received. And those who lost hope simply went into their cell, curled up into a fetal position, and eventually died. But those who survived, survived because they never gave up hope of one day going home. And the difference between those who survived the ordeal and those who did not was hope. See, hope is a very powerful, inspirational force. That's why false hope can be so devastating. But true and everlasting hope that can never be taken away, well, that's just priceless. That's why one of the valuable things about God's Word is that it teaches us to build our hope on something that is a sure foundation that is true and that can never be destroyed and never be taken away. For those who don't know Christ, they have a false hope. And when they discover the true nature of that hope, it will be devastating. Or they have a hope that they know will one day fade away. But the believer replaces false thinking with God's truth and comes to understand the tremendous and the wonderful hope that they have in Christ. And this can be a powerful, inspirational force that can get you through the darkest hours of your life, no matter how difficult things may be. If you have a true understanding of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that can pull you through even your darkest times. Has your spouse abandoned you with your children all alone? Well, if you understand the nature of the Christian hope, It can bring you through those toughest times. 
facing cancer or some incurable kind of disease. Just talking to a friend the other day, she's just 32, diagnosed with lupus. It's her hope in Christ and understanding that hope that allows her to smile even through learning of this really painful kind of disease. And that's one reason why we study prophecy. And the study of prophecy is so valuable to the life of every believer in Jesus Christ. Prophecy reveals to us the great and wonderful and unshakable hope we have in Christ that is for sure and can be never, ever taken away. Understanding biblical prophecy and the events of Christ's return, then, should not only inspire us, but transform our lives in a very significant way. That's one of the reasons why we decided to have a prophecy apologetics conference this year, for prophecy is not only one of the greatest evidences for the truth of the Christian faith, but it's one of the greatest messages of hope. Now, in 2 Peter, the apostle presents to us the great hope and describes the events that occur at the very end of the age. Now, let me set the stage for you in 2 Peter. In chapter 1, Peter exhorts Christians to build themselves up in their Christian character and in the Word of God. Chapter 2, Peter addresses the issue of the false prophets and the false teachers that have arisen. And in every church age, uh, false prophets and false teachers have arisen to mislead a significant group of people. And as Peter describes, they arise from within the body of Christ. As Jesus described, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so he addresses the issues of false prophets and false teachers, how to identify them, but also the condemnation that awaits them at the return of Christ. And then in chapter 3, Peter assures the Christian and tells them the events that surround the coming of the Lord. In the beginning of chapter 3, he addresses a serious question here. The false teachers were denying the return of Christ. You see in verse 4, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so these false prophets here, one of the key things that they were denying is the second coming of Christ. They're saying, We've been here for thousands of years. Things come, things go, things continue as usual. Where is his return? And many skeptics may say that today. They say it's been over 2,000 years. Generations have come, generations have gone. Where is his return? Right? And Peter answers that. He gives two answers in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So Peter says, well, here's your answer. God doesn't see time the same way as we do. He's outside the realm of time. He is an eternal being. And then his second answer is this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. His second answer is that, well, God is being patient. He's allowing many more unbelievers to come into the kingdom of God. I praise God he did not return in 1980, because if he did, I would be in hell today. You know, I'm glad that he withheld and waited, because just a few years later, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
But God withholds that day of judgment, waiting for more to come into the kingdom of God. And then we begin, our study is going to begin in verse 10 through 14 tonight. In these verses, he describes the events of the Lord's return at the end of the age. And he says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, the day of the Lord refers to the days from the rapture till the end of the age. And the cataclysmic end of the age will be sudden, he says, like a thief. Now, the language is used in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44, where Jesus is giving his famous Olivet Discourse over there. And he talks about the signs of his return. And then he says this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It was also used specifically of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, where Paul is talking about the rapture of the church when Christ returns and the church is taken out of the world. And he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So for those who are not prepared for the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord will be disastrous, coming in a surprising way, and it'll be a very destructive time, like a burglary that occurs at night. Now, the timeline for the end times looks a little like this. I didn't put in all the details. This is just a very basic, bare-bones one. But right now, we are in what's called the church age. Okay, Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Now, the church age is going to come to an end. We don't know. A thousand years from now, maybe tomorrow, we don't know. But the church age comes to an end with an event described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 called the rapture, when the church is taken out of the world. Paul says, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are left shall be called up to be in the clouds with him forever. So the church age will end. Now, if you were here at the Prophecy Conference, if things in the Middle East continue to escalate and they're going the way they're going on its present course, folks, I'm not sure we're going to be here much longer. All right? Now, if things suddenly just mellow out, peaceful regimes take over and everyone decides to make peace with Israel or something, highly, highly unlikely. You know, we may be here for a little while longer. But if things are going the course they are going, as Kirby and Mark described, we may not be here for too much longer. Now, the church age ends with a rapture, and then we go into the seven years of tribulation described in Revelation chapter 4 through 19, where God's wrath is unleashed upon the earth. At the end of the seven years of tribulation is the return of Christ and the heavenly host. All right, and Satan and the beast are captured and thrown into the bottomless pit. Christ sets up his rule on David's throne. He rules there in Jerusalem. The covenant promises of Israel are fulfilled. And there is a thousand-year millennium or a thousand-year rule of Christ. 
right? As described in the books of Isaiah, chapter 60 to 66, he gives some detail of what the millennial rule will be like. And then Satan is let loose one last time out of the bottomless pit. He is allowed to deceive the nations, and one final time they will make war against Christ and his hosts. And then Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. Then those unbelievers, those who are not in Christ, they shall receive their resurrection body. They shall stand before the great white throne judgment and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And then this is where we're talking about 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The heavens and the earth shall be destroyed and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? The crystal city of Jerusalem as described in Revelation 21 and 22 shall come and land upon the earth and we go into eternity from there. Okay, so 2 Peter chapter 3 is talking about this event here. At the end of the millennium, the heavens and the earth are completely destroyed by fire. It says here that at, at the end of the millennium here, okay, it says here in verse 10, but day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now here, the heavens refer to the earth's atmosphere and the starry skies, okay? Not heaven, God's abode and our eternal abode. The heavens here refer to the sky and the stars. It says that they will be completely destroyed. First Peter is quoting a passage from Isaiah here, chapter 34, verse 4, where Isaiah talks about the end of the age. He says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll and their hosts shall fall as leaves falling from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Right? So Peter is quoting that kind of imagery found in the Old Testament. Now it says here, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. This is a very colorful word. The word roar it's, you're going to have to go way back in English grammar now, way back. It's called a automatopia. You remember what that is? The car goes vroom, right? When the wall falls, it goes whatever, okay? It's an automatopia here. And it's a colorful word describing the swish of an arrow through the air. Or it's used of, to describe a, the rumbling of thunder, or the rushing of mighty waters, or even the crackle of flames as it consumes and burns up its object. And Peter here appears to be using a word that unites all the horrors into one word here. And it says, the elements shall be destroyed by fire. Now the Greek word for element here, it's an interesting word, stoichia. Okay? It either refers to stars or the material elements, which is what the universe is made of. In other words, the destruction will be complete. The destruction will be by some intense fire that will melt away the very elements which make up our universe. And I believe from this passage, this event not only will bring complete change to the earth, but I think it's going to change the mechanics of the universe as well. We know, according to the second law of thermodynamics, that the universe is running down of usable energy, and one day... The universe will meet its death. 
Well, if we're to be here for all eternity, those mechanics have got to change. And I believe this is describing part of the change that will occur not only upon this earth, but throughout the universe as well. It says here, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Or some of your translations may read will be laid bare. Now, the Greek word there, it's another interesting word, eurethsetai. And this word has several meanings. So it's up to you to do a word study and see which one you think best fits the context here. It could mean that everything will be exposed for what it really is. The secrets of men, the true nature of this sinful, fallen world will be revealed for what it really is. Or another interpretation is that it could suggest that it's actually a question. Peter is saying, will anything be found or remain after this? Or the third interpretation is that it could mean that everything will be burned up. Now, most commentators take the first view that that's why they translate it the way they do, that it will be exposed. The secrets of men and the true nature of this fallen, sinful world will finally be revealed for what it truly is. You know, this verse presents a tremendous problem for the Jehovah Witnesses. Jehovah Witnesses believe that when Christ returns, he will defeat the armies and governments of this world and establish his kingdom here upon this earth. And the Jehovah Witnesses will rule and reign with Christ and teach everyone Jehovah Witness doctrine, and everyone else will be left to clean up the earth. And I remember when I was speaking to a Jehovah Witness elder, I said, you mean this present earth, as it is now, we're going to live on it, just Christ is going to rule and we'll be cleaning it up? And he said, that's right. The present earth we live on now is what we will live on, and you'll be cleaning it up and listening to us. And I said, well, how do you handle 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10? And he said, where? So I looked at it and I said, well, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done it will be exposed. And he looked at it for a long time. And he kind of looked at me and said, I'll have to get back to you on that. Never has. But that presents a tremendous problem for Jehovah Witnesses. But the earth and all the elements will be burned up by some kind of intense heat of judgment here. Whenever Christ comes and judges people or judges things, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's usually in the imagery of fire. You know, I got to visit Nagasaki and Hiroshima and go and visit the museums there. And I got to see the pictures of the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and read about the atomic blast that just in just a few seconds leveled these metropolises to just a barren, wasted desert. The explosion and the radiation was so intense. You see in this picture here, the shadows were burned right into the walls that remained standing. The shadows of people and objects were just, the heat was so intense, it just burned into any standing structure that was left there. And in fact, a Christian doctor who survived the atomic blast, ministered to his people at that time, he eventually died as well. But he wrote of his experience there in a wonderful, wonderful book called The Bells of Nagasaki. It was never allowed to be translated into English, not till just a few years ago because of the things that he described. 
But it is this man, Takashi Nagai, a great and wonderful biography. I wish more Americans would read it. He's one of the Christians in the darkest times of the Japanese people. It is his writings that gave tremendous hope to the people of Japan. Eventually, because of the radiation sickness, in just a few months, all he could do was lie on his back, and he had to have someone dictate the words he wanted written. He was a tremendous figure throughout the world, and his books were finally allowed to be translated to English. And I remember reading The Bells of Nagasaki, wonderful book, but he was describing the atomic blast. And in one chapter, he describes the blast as described from several people who were there to witness it and survived. And one man, he describes the blast, he says that he saw the bomb falling from the sky and suddenly there was a white, that famous white mushroom cloud explosion and he said that there was just silence for just a few seconds and then suddenly he said there was the horrifying sound of a tremendously powerful rushing wind, more powerful than a tornado or any other tsunami or any other force he had ever heard. And he saw that wind coming towards him. And he said it was like a million bulldozers blowing everything over, blowing down, going at lightning fast speed as it raced across the city coming right at him. He said he felt completely helpless as he put his head down into the ground and prayed that he would survive. And then he said he heard the tremendous explosion and then that mighty rushing wind that came and just swept right over him and right through the city. He said the force of a million bulldozers flying through the air, leveling everything in that city. And he said after a few seconds in that ditch, he got up and began calling for his family, and he said the only thing he could smell was the smell of burning resin. And he looked throughout the land, and it looked like hell. Everything black and burned to the ground. That's the image I get when I read this passage. It says that the heavens will pass away with a great roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, knowing the future of this material world and what is to come to pass, God calls us then to live wisely. Invest your life and resources wisely in the things that really matter. You know, as Christians, we often forget there are things more important than money and the material things of this world. Three things are going to last forever. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. And Peter is reminding us then, hey, invest your lives in the things that really matter. We often forget people are more important than things of this material world. And so we want to center and build our goals wherever God has placed you, in whatever job you may be in. This is not a call for everyone to quit and go into the ministry. But whatever your job or calling may be, you want to keep that in mind. You want to invest your life in the things that will last forever. God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. And keep that priority straight always. Knowing the things of this material world. Well, one day you're going to leave it behind. And one day, it'll all be gone. And what will remain with you for all eternity? 
Oh, God, his word, your soul, and the lives of the people that you touched and impacted for the kingdom of God. That's what's going to be with you for all eternity. Because all this will be gone, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, knowing this is the future, how then should we be living? How do we live in light of eternity, in light of knowing what is to come? Well, Peter says this. He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since all these things are to be dissolved, Peter says, well, then how should you be living? The expectation of Christ's return should inspire us to live for him. You see, there's a direct connection between our conduct and our convictions. Knowing that Christ will return and that history is moving towards this climactic end should stimulate us to holy living and righteousness and living for him. This concludes the first part of the message. I hope you've come to a greater understanding of the events that will take place at the end of the age and are inspired to live for our Lord, knowing His return is imminent. Join Pat for part two of this message, Living in Light of His Return, a study of Second Peter. If you missed any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to this message and take advantage of other great resources on this site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join Pat as he presents part two of this message right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.